Dress, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And Callahan. April Callahan. You see what I did there, Cass? It's my my little homage to James Bond's signature style of introducing himself as Bond. James Bond. (laughs) Which is, of course, the subject of today's episode, and I don't know if you can tell, but I'm super excited. I mean, I am as well. How can we not be? Today is all about the media representation of some of the most glamorous women to ever grace the silver screen. We are going to be talking today about the Bond Girls. Yes, and we are joined by Dr. Monica Germana, who is a senior lecturer in English literature and creative writing at the University of Westminster in London. And she recently released the book, Bond Girls, Body, Fashion, and Gender. And as you know, Cass, I am a huge Bond fan. And since we share a publisher, I emailed them immediately and I was like, please put us in touch. And I can't say enough good things about her book. It's a really fascinating and critical examination of the women who inhabit the world of James Bond in terms of gender, race, and style. It is chock full of so much delicious theory as applied to the Bond narratives. You have Laura Mulvey to Freud, Kant, Lacan, Dr. Germana makes a compelling argument that the common read of Bond girls as, you know, sex kittens and damsels in distress. Well, it just might be a little more nuanced than that. The archetype of the Bond girl might just be more feminist than we may have thought. So Dr. Germana, welcome to the show today. Dr. Jermonet, thank you so much for joining us today. I have to say that I am a huge Bond fan, and I have been since I was a small child, and I've seen all of the movies more than once, so I was super excited to see your book come out a few months ago. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. But before we get to this bevy of beautiful women who have graced the Bond franchise for more than 70 years now, I'm hoping that we can talk a little bit about the man behind the creation of the character of James Bond, who was, of course, Ian Fleming. And he was quite the personality in his own right. Am I correct? Absolutely. So Ian Fleming uh, was a Scottish man, and not many people realize that. And, and, and Bond is also a, a Scotsman or half a Scotsman anyway. So the, the, there's many overlaps. Um, Fleming came from an upper class background as this Bond. Fleming works in naval intelligence in the Second World War. And so therefore he had that kind of background in espionage and the secret services and the world of intelligence, which which um, excited him and, and interested him. So, a lot of the detail we found in the if we find in the in the novels is very much detail that came from Fleming's own experience, direct experience of the world and the world of intelligence. Mm-hmm. Fleming also was um, very athletic. He liked sports from his days at school. 
up to his middle age. He also enjoyed uh, the fine things in life, including uh, <laughs> alcohol and um, fine foods, um, simple foods, but rich foods as well, and uh, women, um, plenty of them. <laughs> many affairs. He was only married once, but he had many affairs before during, and during the marriage. It was a sort of open marriage. And Rodomir, who then became Anne Fleming, of course, was also very uh, interested in, in experimenting and having relationships other than when, with Ian Fleming. So, so there's lots of overlaps, I would say, between Ian Fleming and James Bond. And I think that's also why people have been intrigued to find out about, um, about the author behind the Bond novels and short stories. Yeah, and I think that many of our listeners may not have known that the Bond films were actually first based on the books. And he wrote 13 books and also a handful of stories. And even as big a fan as I am, I didn't realize that Casino Royale was Fleming's very first book, which was published in 1953. And of course, its most recent film incarnation uh, was the first of the Bond series to star Daniel Craig back in 2012. So your book looks at Fleming's writings, uh, the books, and the films. And several of these films, like Casino Royale, were adapted and produced decades after the books were written. And many of the narratives in both the books and the movies surrounding race and gender feel very problematic when we look at them today. And this is something that you confront head on in your book. Like, you do not shy away from this at all, which is much appreciated. Might you give us a couple of examples of how some of the classic themes that we see in Bond can be problematic today to contemporary audiences? Sure. I mean, first of all, I I also wanted to point out that Casino Royale was in fact first adapted in 1967 and starred David Navin. This was not a production by Ian, who the company that's behind the, the Bond franchise. It was an independent company. And really, it doesn't count as an adaptation as such because it only takes the themes loosely and then descends into a rather bizarre kind of plotless film. So... <laughs> Just for the sake of uh, accuracy, there was a Casino Royale before Daniel Craig starred in it. Yes. But anyway, going back to your question about gender and race, you're absolutely right. When you read the novels and when you see many of the particularly earlier movies, you realise, particularly with today's hindsight, I guess, that um, there are problematic relationships uh, going on, both in terms of race and in terms of gender. Now, when you look at the origins of Bond in the 1950s, this is a moment in time where Britain, well, Europe, the world had been shaken up by the Second World War. Many changes had occurred in the social fabric, particularly of Britain. The British Empire was coming to a a rapid end. Um, The gender relations had been shaken up by the war as well because um, women had been taking up jobs that had been left uh, without uh, men. Men were all at the front. So women had had to sort of make the most of a difficult situation. And then as a result, at the end of the 1940s, women were a lot stronger in a lot stronger position uh, than they were before the war. 
So in the Bond novels and some of the earlier films, you do see these tensions at work. Bond is a very conservative figure. He represents a kind of um, masculinity that's in any way regressive already at the time of Fleming's writing. It's a kind of masculinity that's still thinking of, you know, the kind of masculine heroism that would have been fueled by the world wars and uh, a kind of masculinity that um, was still very much British, um, upper class and white. Now, the end of the war, the end of the colonial um, venture, the end of, uh, represented the end also of that kind of masculinity. Mm-hmm. So Bond mm-hmm. is very much the center of a world that doesn't exist anymore or a world that's beginning to vanish. And the strong women around him challenge his masculinity, challenge gender roles through their emancipated behaviors and patterns of behavior that appear throughout the novels and the early films. Now, Bond reacts badly to this. Bond tries to dominate women. Bond Bond is patronizing to them. Bond is also condescending to people of color. And the race relations in the books and the early films can also be rather difficult to digest this in this day and age because there is a clear binary opposition between Bond's upper class white British ways and the ways of the foreign villains, uh, the customs of the people he encounters and uh, interacts with when he's overseas. So, Yes, you're absolutely right. Gender and race are incredibly problematic and and the politics attached to them are difficult. But nevertheless, it's good because the the novels and the films expose the problems that we can then discuss today. Right, right. And and ultimately, you you came away with this incredibly well-formed argument that as you write, I'm going to quote you here, a sartorial analysis of Bond girls exposes their performance of femininity as an active challenge to sexist and racist ideologies rather than as passive victims of patriarchal and imperial masters inscribed in their clothes are multiple patterns of disruption to the political foundation of Bond's world. Wow. Mad writer respect, Monica. That Those two sentences pack quite the punch. <laughs> But I'm hoping that you might first establish some of the mainstream expectations of women during Fleming's era in terms of femininity so that as we move on, we can establish how this archetype of the Bond girl really kind of stands in contrast. Of course. So after the war, women, we are we understand, went back to sort of fulfill the more traditional feminine roles that they had been performing before uh, the Second World War. So there's different cycles during the 20th century, you know, both worlds shaking up the gender roles that had been in place before the war. So after the 1940s into the 1950s, we generally regard this decade as a conservative decade. It's the decade where women well, go back to the kitchen, go back to being homemakers, um, family, mothers, wives, supporting their husbands in their missions, their roles, their professional careers, and their, and therefore even fashion. Of course, you know that my book is framed by the work of fashion and fashion discourse. 
fashion reflects this return to a more conservative traditional femininity with a return to A-line skirts um, as opposed to the more streamlined contours of uh, and silhouettes of 1940s austerity fashion. So women are expected to be let's say, less active and more passive recipient of uh, male authority and um, somehow supportive of their husband's desires and ambitions. So that's the kind of ideal femininity that the 1950s would have um, celebrated. Mm -hmm. And then enter the Bond girls. who really function as a foil to some of these traditional notions of femininity at this time, right? Yes. And I mean, both the textual Bond girls, you know, in the novels, as well as the cinematic Bond girls, uh, are rather different from what the mainstream 1950s woman would have been. Think, for example, in cinematic terms, um, Ursula Andress versus um, Marilyn Monroe. Radically different kinds of femininity, both sexy, for sure, One that's much more sexual in a way that she is looking to find a male companion. She's looking to Mm -hmm. find a gentleman who can marry her and support her and give her a good life. The other one, much more independent, athletic, with her own, both physically and uh, mentally independent Perhaps in the film, even less so than in the book, Honey Ryder is the archetypal Bond girl. She's free from kind of uh, the um, aspirations of the 1950s woman. She's not interested in marriage or having a family or having kids. She's led by desire, uh, her own desire of Bond. She initiates a sexual relationship with Bond. She's a very sensual woman. And you, of course, could say that this is a male fantasy, ultimately, the woman that comes on to to the man and, and demands sex. But in the 1950s, this would have been quite a radical rethinking of femininity, femininity that's active, that's not based around marriage or family or, you know, babies wanting to have uh, children and settle in the, into that kind of normative model. Bond girls want uh, things that are different. They're not normative in their desires. And I want to touch back um, a little bit on this issue of race, um, because this is a, a, a theme that is going to weave all the way through what we're talking about today. You have an entire chapter in your book devoted to this issue of race. It's called Dark Continents, Fashion, Foreignness, and Femininity. And you state, quote, like the majority of Bond villains, the majority of Bond girls are foreign. So, uh, Monica, how does this notion of foreignness play out in these power dynamics between first Bond and the male villains. And then I guess I want to talk about the foreignness in the context of the Bond girls next. Sure. I mean, that's a very important uh, question, the notion of the villain's foreignness. They are always or typically of mixed race or mixed blood at the very least. Their um, lineage is not clear. Um, So from the start, we have, I don't know, Mr. Big even, we're told he's not pure Negro. He's born in Haiti, but has a good dose of French blood. Hugo Drax in Moonraker is originally German, but English by adoption. Blofeld is also uh, of mixed nationality. 
as is Red Grant and uh, many of the other villains. So uh, the notion that the villain is not clearly pinned down to one nationality or one ethnic group is central to the idea that Bond instead represents the British Empire. He represents white upper class authority effectively over the other less pure nationalities and ethnicities, if you like. Um, So Bond represents this kind of ideal, but in fact, he is not. His Englishness is a matter of performance. So when you actually look into his background, you realize that he's very self-conscious about the fact that he's not English. He's half Scottish, half Swiss, and he has a chip on the shoulder about not being English enough, especially when he moves around the English circle, the English upper-class circles, the establishment in London. He's much more comfortable abroad, overseas, where his Britishness can pass his Englishness. Nobody will be able to to tell the difference, but he's very much self-conscious about that. And I think this anxiety is quite interesting because it is then reflected onto the villains mm-hmm. and the way the way the villains are, are dressed as well often reflects this kind of foreignness. Dr. No is presented to us in a kimono although he's Chinese, so he should really be wearing a Chinese dress. So there is a touch of Orientalism on Fleming's part, sort of mixing everything up as uh, as, as, as the same, effectively. All Asian costume is the same, he seems to be saying. Other villains certainly wear um, traditional uh, Western clothes, but they're also subverting the way in which they are wearing those Western clothes, whereas Bond is always impeccably dressed. The suits of the other um, villains from Goldfinger to um, Hugo Drax are produce almost a grotesque effect on the bodies of the villains. The most grotesque parody of Britishness is, of course, in the book as well as in the film Goldfinger. Um, Goldfinger's um, henchman, Oddjob, who wears you know a traditional Western suit uh, down to a bowler hat, but he effectively looks like a grotesque parody of Englishness, therefore reinforcing that idea of racial difference, which is at odds with uh, British whiteness. Mm-hmm. And these power dynamics play out a little bit differently in the interactions between 007 and the ladies that cross his path in these inevitable travels. And, you know, as you've kind of already touched on, at the time of Fleming's initial manuscripts, that patriarchal mindset born out of colonialism was still very much in place. So how did this inform the way that Fleming wrote about women, and in particular, the women that Bond encounters abroad? This is a very, very intriguing question because um, one of the things about Bond is that he never seems to um, score with British ladies, um, especially British white ladies. So his lovers are always uh, foreign or women of color. So there seems to be a suggestion whereby the British woman remains untouchable and untouched. She still represents the unconscious body of Britannia. The uh, epitome of this is, of course, the unconsummated relationship between Bond and Moneypenny. Of course. Moneypenny <laughs> flirts extremely hard with Bond, especially in the earlier movies when she's played by uh, Lois Maxwell. 
But nothing ever happens. It's as if there is an unwritten rule. And in fact, in the novels, uh, Fleming almost goes as, as far as saying this. There is an unwritten rule that that relationship can never be consummated. Those women cannot be touched. They are part of this civil, of the, of the secret service. And they, they represent in a way, the British Empire, the whiteness of the woman or the female body cannot be conquered by Bond or anybody else. Yeah. Of yeah. course, we have a subversion of that in Dr. No, where Mary Trueblood, a, a secretary uh, working for the Secret Service in Jamaica, is killed and probably sexually violated by what Fleming calls a chigro, a mixed Chinese and black man. And that sexual assault or the assault that has a sexual connotation in itself represents a subversion of the colonial authority and ideology that Bond represents. Vice versa, when Bond is overseas, he's always able to conquer the bodies of female foreign women. Sometimes they are white women, sometimes they're women of color, but that kind of relationship exists nevertheless. It's a relationship that some would say can never lead to marriage, and the only time that Bond ever goes near marriage is, of course, with Tresi Di Vincenzo, who is also not British, but is white. But those relationships never go anywhere because the marriage would signify somehow Bond's mingling his his blood with foreigners, and Bond cannot do that. Well, he, he also cannot settle down because he would not be bound. <laughs> That's right. We have only scratched the surface to speak about clothing, and we're going to speak more about that after we come back from the short sponsor break. Welcome back. I'd like to now turn our attention to the role that clothing played in shaping some of the female characters in Fleming's books, because Monica, as you know, he went to great lengths describing the ensembles of his characters, male and female alike. And it's quite clear that a certain penchant for cutting-edge fashion was a major element in the personas of the Bond girls. So I'm hoping we might first discuss Live and Let Die, because I think for both of us, that film really represents a lot of the problematic issues that we've been talking about in terms of gender and race. But it's also, at the same time, it's one of my favorite of the Bond films. So I'm hoping that you might give us a brief overview of the plot, and I'm hoping we can talk about the character of Solitaire, who is played by a very young, very beautiful Jane Seymour. So, I mean, Jane Seymour, as you say, was incredibly young, but in a way, I think she was very well suited to the character of uh, of Solitaire. Um, I just wanted to say something about the book first, and then I'll move on to to the film, if if I may. In in the book, her costumes, if you like, are much more European. She is meant to be the daughter of a family that settled in um, Haiti uh, a while back, so she is. She represents the legacy of colonial British colonial power, and she is described as a powerful, strong woman, a woman who knows that her powers of um, second sight and clairvoyance are very dubious, but who has nevertheless been using those powers to to make money. 
And um, but she's always impeccably dressed in what we would call Western fashion, very classic, very tailored pieces, and interestingly, always black or white. And and I think that contrast that um, represents the duality at the center of the book, the racial contrast, the black versus the white, um, which is also, of course, picked up by the film. The film was very much informed by a certain trend in cinema, um, what we would call black exploitation films, films that sort of recouped black heritage and centered around black characters wanting to really to cater to a different audience of film goers and, and, and include effectively characters of various um, uh, racial groups, particularly, of course, uh, black American racial groups. In um, Live and Let Die, we do see that happening and, and the franchise clearly was trying to cater to that kind of trend. Jane Seymour uh, plays Solitaire, who is white, but is affiliated with um, Haitian Kananga, also, of course, known as Mr. Big. We do know that the two are the same later on in the film. And she does have um, second side powers. Her clairvoyance is not in doubt at the beginning of the film. In fact, it's, it's accepted as a real power. And is also linked, of course, to her virginity. Her untouched status guarantees that her clairvoyance actually works. So Mr. Big will know later on that she has been unfaithful to him, that she has slept with Bond because she has lost her superpower. Her costumes are amazing. They are. Probably the most stunning um, costumes that a Bond girl has ever worn. Um, perhaps Kissy Suzuki's in You Only Live Twice goes near it with her kimono, some of her kimonos. But um, really, the extraordinary detail and the, the flamboyance of um, Solitaire's clothes in Live and Let Die are both a tribute to. This is 1970s flirtation with uh, bohemian and, you know, bohemian chic, but also a kind of, of link to fashion cyclical interest in the Orient and Eastern fashions. Solitaire's clothes do not pay attention to a particular tradition. They're more of a mix of different traditions. The first mm. red gown that she wears seems to pay tribute, for example, to a Turkish tradition of the Bindali gown, the gown worn by brides. So the color red is both um, symbolic of um, the female sex, uh, both in terms of you know the cycle of the female body, menstruation, childbirth, uh, but also the occult powers that are attached to the, the uh, folkloric dress that in some cases has some kind of talismanic powers. Dress becomes a magical tool in itself. And she wears these gowns when she's, in fact, uh, reading the future, reading a tarot. Later on, it's interesting to see that her hemline drops deeper and showing much more flesh and much more cleavage, perhaps to indicate that she's getting closer to being seduced by Bond, whereas to begin with, she's fully covered and she's quite chaste. Um, later on, she shows more flesh. Um, later still, the dress becomes more elaborate with details of peacock feathers, for example, displaying a wider set of um, 
um, uh, influences spanning from Africa to to India, because peacock feathers have had a, an important symbolic function um, in many ethnic cultures. Mm-hmm. So I guess what we are saying here that in creating these rather hybrid costumes, um, solitaire represents a whiteness that is uneasy about its own white identity. You could say that her white identity is almost deficient in the sense that it's unmarked by a, a particular distinctive kind of identity and therefore she has to borrow from other cultures mm-hmm. to embody the character that she 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 represents so you could look at this negatively and think of it as a sort of inappropriate form of cultural appropriation because she wears clothes that don't belong to her culture that she has no right to wear But you could also argue the other way, and this is, I think, quite uh, interesting in the book, in the sense that the cultural relativism that Bond comes from seems to suggest that actually there isn't a binary uh, relationship between the Black people that he sees and interacts with in Harlem and his own white British background, but the boundaries between the two are much more porous. So race and ethnicities are not necessarily just bound to the biology of the body, but they are actually a matter of performance. And I think this is a very, very important point that the film and the book both try to make. Yeah, and this exoticism and and otherness are are quite literally written into the wardrobes of not only Solitaire, but many, if not most, other female characters in the Bond stories. Would you care to share a few which you find especially poignant? And what is this appeal of the exotic other for both Bond and also the audience? Well, I think uh, exoticism is a obviously a problematic term in, in general as well as in fashion. But the West has always had a very, very um, deep fascination with with the Orient. Ever since the 18th century, uh, cultural and commercial exchanges became more and more frequent with uh, the Middle East, with Turkey, but also with the Far East, China in particular. So there are um, relationships that go both ways. In, uh, in the 1950s and 1960s, the Cheung Sam, the traditional female Chinese dress, became particularly popular. And you see that, uh, of course, in Dr. No, where Honey Rider is forced to wear a dress, uh, a garment based on the Cheung Sam in Dr. No's lair. And that is a form of reverse colonialism. Dr. No, being half Chinese, sort of forces his own ethnicity on both Bond and Honey Rider. And that enforcement is a form of reverse colonialism that effectively shows that he has the upper hand. He, they are in, in his power because they're captive, of course, in his own lair. There are other ways in which the oriental dress functions in uh, interesting ways in the Bond films. In... Um, Die Another Day. At the beginning, we have a scene in Hong Kong where Bond is um, sort of recovering from uh, an ordeal in Korea and he checks in at the Royal Royal Rubiot uh, Hotel in Hong Kong and he sent uh, a masseuse over to his room to um, basically offer her services. Her name is Peaceful Fountains of Desire. Her name... (laughs) 
really is laughable, of course, and, and very playful. And it makes us think about, you know, the stereotype of the submissive, passive oriental woman. And I say Oriental, of course, in inverted commas, but that would have been a stereotype that Fleming himself would have subscribed to. And of course, I mean, she only pretends to be a masseuse. She, when Bond feels her sigh, he realizes that she wears a gun strapped to her garter. She's, in fact, Chinese intelligence. So what we're saying here that is that the ethnic dress, uh, with all its connotations of um, certain colonial stereotypes attached to racial difference, and particularly in this case, the, you know, the passivity and submissiveness of the Oriental woman, again, Oriental with inverted commas here, is in fact subverted by the wearer who manipulates Bond's gaze, attempts to seduce him, to distract him, but actually has her own agenda concealed literally in her own body. So under that semblance of um, passive beauty, there is a, a much more dangerous femininity. Yeah, absolutely. And and speaking of dangerous femininity, I think that we both share a great respect for the next Bond girl I'd like to discuss, the inimitable Grace Jones. And she, of course, played May Day in the 1985 film A View to a Kill. And Unlike Solitaire, who was kind of, you know, like this damsel in distress and love interest um, for Bond, Mayday is very much a villain, and she's an incredibly complex character. Would you speak a bit about her character in, in terms of gender and race? Yes, absolutely. She is, as you say, one of the most intriguing Bond girls. Um, she's not, of course, the first black Bond girl. She's a Bond girl villain. The first black Bond girl would have been Rosie Carver in uh, Live and Let Die. Um, she is attached to the villain, Zorin. And the film is all, again, centered around dubious notion of racial experimentation. Um, Zorin, we know, was... Um, the product of some kind of genetic experimentation in a Nazi concentration camp. And certainly his Aryan looks speak volumes of the kind of racial anxieties in place. Grace Jones functions as his henchwoman. She trains him in karate or martial arts. Um, she probably sleeps with him as well as sleeping with Bond as a demand from her honor, let's say. I say honor because I think uh, the film plays ambiguously with the notion that Grace Jones represents the body of the slave, the body of the black slaves. Like a slave, like a female slave, she, her body is strong and she's made for labor. She's also um, made for sex um, both sex with the honor and uh, with whomever he would like to sell her to. So to an extent, Grace Jones's character, Mayday, is dangerous, but is also exploited in very problematic ways. But because she is played by Grace Jones, there is much more to her than a passive victim of um, white male uh, power. Her body is strong and notoriously androgynous, self-consciously androgynous. So the film showcases her androgyny uh, through shots that really display and showcase her muscular physique. She's a, She's got supernatural strengths. She's able to lift male bodies. She's able to tame 
people and as well as animals. So she's she's got this kind of supernatural superhero kind of um, role. And that's exactly what effectively she imagined the character should be. She was very involved in creating the costumes for her character. Yes, I love this part. It's so good. Yeah. So she collaborated with uh, the producers. She introduced them to Azadine Alaya, who was her fashion designer of choice. And Alaya was very famous for his sculpted um, dresses. And he was also very much into showing a kind of woman and femininity that is empowered and strong in her own right. And that's exactly what we have in Mayday's costumes. Her costumes are made of dresses that often have an incorporated headscarf or hood, which cover her head, indicating an aura of mystery and mystique. They're also very sculpted to show off uh, broad shoulders and um, narrower um, waist. She called that silhouette uh, cartoonish. She was uh, very conscious that the Bond girl's look should be that of an exaggerated, stylized femininity, a villainous femininity that she associated with some of the Disney characters. And certainly her bicorn hairstyle is reminiscent of Maleficent, for example, you know, the, the villain in Sleeping Beauty. So she does represent that kind of cartoonish Tunish, exaggerated um, female villainess. Um, it's problematic because she doesn't have a voice as much. She doesn't have many lines in the film and she mostly grunts. And that could be read as a sign that, you know, again, the body of the black female slave is not given any voice, is not given any agency. And at the end, of course, she dies and we feel that perhaps, you know, she is just a sacrificial lamb. She goes from being a femme fatale to being a sacrificial lamb. But actually, I would argue that she's not a sacrificial lamb because it's precisely at the moment of her death that she shows her agency and the fact that unlike mm, Zorin, uh, the villain, and to an extent Bond, she's not just interested in herself, she's interested in the bigger picture. She wants to save the world from the apocalypse that is going to be brought on by the explosion uh, that's been uh, set up by Zorin. So her decision to sacrifice her own life is an incredible gesture of amazing strength. So throughout the film, she shows a wonderful and supernatural physical strength. And at the end, she, stro she, she displays incredible moral strength. So I think she's overall an incredibly powerful Bond girl. Yeah, she's definitely one of my favorite, if not my favorite, for sure. You mentioned androgyny um, in the context of Grace Jones, and this plays out a little bit in some of the other Bond girls' ensembles as well. You wrote in the book that, quote, Bond girls play a vital role in the sartorial journey of cross-dressing. So I'm hoping that you might expound upon this a bit and speak a little bit about the kind of avant-gardeness of, of some of the Bond girls' ensembles? So to the kind of um, general public or sort of um, collective imagination, when people conjure up an image of a Bond girl, they will typically think of skimpy clothes, maybe bikinis, maybe underwear and glamorous evening dresses. But there is a lot more to Bond girls' costumes. And if you look at the films as closely as I have or 
probably you have as well, you can see there's a huge variety of outfits that are determined by the missions that these women are often involved in. So trousers and uniforms, for example, feature uh, very frequently among the Bond girls and, and, you know, in their wardrobes. Pussy Galore, for instance, in spite of her name, doesn't wear a bikini. Uh, She doesn't wear a dress. Even when she's asked to perform the sort of honey trap role for Bond by Goldfinger, who she works for to begin with, the concession that she makes to her tailored suits is a slightly lower cut top that displays part of her cleavage, but her arms and legs remain covered. And this is because Pussy Galore is implicitly meant to be a lesbian character, immune, as she says, to Bond's charms. She indeed floors him to uh, in a judo move uh, when he first attempts to kiss her. He, he then, of course, succeeds in seducing her in a very problematic way. But nevertheless, her outfits represent the kind of tailored suits that almost resemble a female version of Bond. And this appears a lot in both the books and the films. Tiffany Case in uh, the novel also wears uh, trousers and a shirt, particularly when she rescues Bond from Specterville. And Bond will admit to her that he owed everything to her. He, she had saved his life. Even um, other characters more recently in the films from Wylin in uh, Tomorrow Never Dies and Jinx in Die Another Day, both wear um, catsuits, either leather or rubber catsuits, again showing that they are there for action, they are there for speed, for agility. They're not there to seduce anybody. They are there to perform physical stunts, which in the case of actually Wailin were mostly performed by the actress uh, Michelle Yeoh without need for a stand-in. So activity is really important. And this reflects changes into women's fashion that had been simmering and occurring since the end of the 19th century. Um, The advent of trousers for women was really led by physical activity. The bicycle in particular and other sports posed problems to female dress. How can you, you know, ride a bicycle in a a corset and crinoline? (laughs) You can't. So that's why trousers became a, a thing. But they would not be worn by women ordinarily until really the late 1960s. Film stars such as Greta Garbo and Marlene Dietrich would have been wearing trousers in public, but ordinary women would not. And so to see women wearing trousers in the early 60s and in Fleming books throughout the 50s was quite a radical thing. Absolutely. Um, We talk about this again and again and again on dress. So many of our listeners will already be very familiar with the when women started wearing pants. We're going to take another short sponsor break. But when we come back, we're going to chat about perhaps the most iconic Bond girl ensemble of all time, as worn by the character which you have already mentioned, Monica Honey Rider. Welcome back. 
Monica, it would practically be sacrilege in the realm of the Bond universe if we did not, of course, talk about the Bond girl costume, which has become synonymous with the franchise itself. And I'm, of course, speaking about the itsy-bitsy, tiny white bikini as worn by Honey Rider in the very first Bond film, Dr. No. So how does the costume in the film relate to the passage as written by Fleming in the book? And, And how does this kind of serve Honey's character? Of course, you, you're absolutely right. I mean, Honey Rider remains the ultimate iconic Bond girl. In whichever website you visit, she will always top the chart. She's the number one. And there was something quite extraordinary in the way that she did appear to Bond. I mean, that scene is incredibly fascinating on so many levels. The thing about costumes in Dr. No was that the film, although it had a decent budget, um, they didn't know what to make of Bond and and the Bond girl. So many of the costumes were actually chosen rather um, last minute, let's uh, shall we say. Um, Sylvia Trench's red dress, for instance, which is also very iconic, was found very last minute on a high street. When it came to Honey Rider's first appearance, um, we know from interviews with Ursula Andress that she didn't have a costume until, again, very last minute, because it was a tiny little problem. In the book, um, Honey Rider is completely naked. She doesn't <laughs> wear anything. In 1962, that was not an option. You couldn't show that in cinema. Full frontal nudity would have been a big no-no from, from the censor. Even belly buttons were a problem in 1962. So what what are we going to do? Well, there wouldn't have been a problem in 1962, but it would have been a problem earlier in the 1950s. But certainly full frontal nudity would have been impossible. So they devised this bikini. This white bikini was based on uh, Ursula Andress's own uh, brassiere. And the costume designer just uh, improvised a bikini. Little did she know that this would become the most iconic moment, probably, in terms of the fashion in, on display in the in the Bond films. I think the most interesting detail, however, in the costume is the knife belt. Absolutely. That's something that she wears in the book. So Fleming describes Honey Rider as being completely naked, but for the knife belt. I mean, that detail is immensely important, both because of the sensuality attached to it. It obviously draws attention to her crotch, which in um, Fleming's book would have been bare. And in the film, it displays a sort of disruption of the bikini Look, you don't normally see a girl in bikini wearing a knife uh, around the waist. And even scuba divers would normally wear their diving knives strapped to their calves, not to their waist. So I think it's not far-fetched to see that as a symbolic representation of a certain kind of phallic power that Honey Rider is meant to represent. She is androgynous in the sense that she's got very strong legs, she's got the physique of a diver, a very strong swimmer, and she uses those skills both in the book and the film. And in that way, she is um, on one level with Bond, if not on a higher level, because she knows the tides better. In the book, she rescues herself. In the film, she's rescued by Bond, of course. So she plays more the damsel in distress kind of character. Mm -hmm. 
there's something about that stance, that appearance on screen as well as in the book that are both very, very important. When she appears from the sea, there are lots of iconic uh, references that are being made, particularly to Venus's Botticelli. And Fleming was very much aware of the comparisons between Venus and Honey Rider in the book. In the film, when she appears carrying shells, which clearly are also representative symbolically of certain kind of femininity in their sensuous shape, she says, what are you doing? Are you looking for shells? And he says, no, I'm just looking. (laughs) That to me is anything but the most obvious uh, cinematic reflection on the male gaze. He is there to look and feast upon her beautiful body. So, so far, so stereotypical, you know, beautiful woman and male gaze. But again, she disrupts that because she doesn't stand still. She's not passive, but she immediately grabs her knife and she's ready to use it against Bond. So this is not just a pretty face and a gorgeous body to to look at. This is an active body, a body that is prepared to challenge Bond's masculinity on a symbolic and literal way. Yeah, and of course, she had previously um, killed her landlord, right, by dropping a deadly spider or a snake into his room. Which one was it? I can't remember. A a spider, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she says it so, like, nonchalantly (laughs) in the film. And in the book as well. And uh, there's obviously parallels because he's also, uh, of course, uh, nearly killed by a centipede um, that has been dropped by Dr. No's agent into his bed. So there's clearly parallels between the threats posed to Bond's body and the threats that Honey Rider poses to the male oppressors in her life. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. So this iconic scene where she emerges from the ocean in in the bikini has become so important to the entire Bond franchise that it's been revisited not once, but actually twice now in subsequent Bond films. So Monica, would you comment on this? And I think this kind of really leads us into a discussion on a revision of the male gaze that we were just talking about that we see in the most recent films. Yes, absolutely. So first of all, in Die Another Day, Halle Berry wears an orange version of uh, Ursula Andress's white bikini. And the link is again the diving knife, which is attached to a belt, on a leather belt on uh, Halle Berry's bikini, who plays Jinx. And the, there is a letter J attached to the buckle of the, of the belt, which indicates that the belt is really symbolic and reinforces the idea that it's really symbolic of the character and of who they are. And just as Honey Rider, Jinx, does represent a very uh, strong and active female body and an agent who has her own mission and has got enough um power of her own to 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 drive herself. She's, of course, also rescued by Bond in what I think is a moment of weakness in the film. She does suddenly become a very weak 
damsel in distress. But uh, apart from that moment, I think up until that point, she's still the same strong character that pays homage to, to Ursula Andress. But then in Casino Royale, of course, we have a, a, a further reversal of that moment with Daniel Craig appearing from um, the ocean wearing mm, a very tight uh, set of uh, La Perla blue trunks, which became immensely popular. And they were sold at an auction for thousands of pounds. I think it was something like 45,000 pounds or something somebody paid for them and auctioned by Dame Judi Dench, which is also fabulous. <laughs> yes. And she she claimed that they were unwashed. <laughs> <laughs> so, so playing really on the fetish aspect of, of, the, of the garment. So at that particular moment, the actor Katrina Murino, who plays Solange, is gazing upon the body of Bond when he comes out of the water. So there is a real reversal of the gaze. It's now the female gaze that voyeuristically feasts upon the spectacle of the male body. Now, this moment was hailed as incredibly innovative, but actually, as I argue in my book, I think Bond's body has been the spectacle um, for a lot longer, ever since the debut, you know, the Sean Connery era. I've recently rewatched uh, Goldfinger and Connery wears that kind of blue toweling suit, a play suit that shows off as much of his leg as possible. And then, you know, he removes it to, again, show off his torso. So there is something about the athleticism and the strength of the male body that's also fetishized from the start in a way that makes Bond's masculinity once again vulnerable because the moment you are the object of display, you cease to be invulnerable, you cease to be the kind of inscrutable agent. Ideally, he should be invisible as a spy, as a secret agent, he should aim for invisibility, but Bond is nothing but invisible, he's all too visible. (laughs) And women and men both uh, notice him. And, and that uh, aspect of his visibility, you can draw back to a tradition um, of the male dandy in, in Britain, which Bond certainly uh, subscribes to. He is conspicuous in his inconspicuousness. His uh, elegance can be you know, classy and impeccable, but it's still such a distinctive look that will always make him very, very visible. And of course, when when he's semi-naked, wearing swimming trunks and showing a particular kind of um, very physical body, as in the interpretation given by Daniel Craig, Daniel Craig's bond, you could argue, is the most physical of all bonds. And in that respect, I would say he is also the most vulnerable of all bonds. He does show blood. He shows fatigue. His body is often under scrutiny, precisely because he represents that kind of vulnerable uh, male physique, which is meant to be perfect, is meant to be flawless and invincible, but it's not. Right. Absolutely. I want to talk about the Bond girls in the context of feminism really briefly. At the very end of your book, uh, you conclude with the following passage. You write, blurring the masculine and feminine, assertive, submissive binary categories 
Bond femme fatales self-consciously manipulate the male gaze that frames femininity as a passive spectacle. Dressed to kill and at times to die, Bond girls and female villains twist the known paradigms of the male gaze, restoring power to its fetishized object. So I guess my last big question to you would be, how do we interpret the women of Bond through the lens of feminism? That is a difficult question and one, of course, that I ask throughout the book. And and I guess that was also my starting point, really. I felt that the criticism that had been produced so far of Bond girls didn't go far enough in, in actually addressing their nuances and often too often dismissing them as eye candy or trophy girls, uh, women who effectively act only as objectified bodies and and therefore uh, bonds desire uh, without uh, desires and, and and missions of their own and I, and I felt that, that was wrong and I wanted to address that one of the main ways in which my argument works is effectively by reversing the ideas of voyeurism and exhibitionism that are at the center of um, established theories of the male gaze from Laura Mulvey's famous article on the male gaze uh, onward. So the the central idea around this argument is that, you know, the female body is exhibitionist. It, it shows off its own beauty in both Western art and film. And the male gaze controls it, frames it, dissects it, effectively uses it to establish its own authority. Now, you could say that in some cases, female bodies in the films perform that function, that the fetishized body appears, for example, in the credit scenes uh, where the silhouettes of female bodies often dissected, often compared or melting into objects become effectively objects that can be manipulated with and played with. They're not real. But there is a difference between the credit scenes and the actual characters who will be very diverse. Um, What I argue is that Bond girls are not a monolithic team of women who are all the same. Bond girls keep changing. It's Bond that stays the same. This has remained the exact same since the 1950s, whereas Bond girls have evolved and continue to evolve. So if anything, there isn't an exact formula to a Bond girl because Bond girls become actually quite a elusive as a concept. In reversing the gaze, you could actually argue that the exhibitionism they perform is a way to manipulate back the gaze. So they both um, use seduction as a weapon. Mm -hmm. We've seen Mm -hmm. that with, for example, Peaceful Fountains of Desire, Electra King also manipulates Bond's desire to her own end, although she doesn't, of course, end well herself. But there are other ways in which uh, Bond girls subvert the male gaze. Uh, Eva Green, for example, who plays Vesper Lind in Casino Royale, literally plays with the male gaze when she wears the dress that Bond has bought for her specifically to distract Le Chiffre from the card game they are playing. But instead of following the instructions and appearing uh, from behind Bond, so therefore to distract uh, Le Chiffre, she appears in front of Bond, so she distracts him instead. <laughs> and that really shows that she's in 
incredibly aware of the power of the male gaze, but she is subverting it. So she's not the object to it. She's the subject of the male gaze. So that is one of the ways, a central way in which you can so to reestablish a new way of reading Bond girls, their beauty and their glamour, not just a, as the kind of passive form of exhibitionism and display for the pleasure of masculinity, but as women whose glamour conceals threats and challenges to masculinity because they subvert that kind of direct power line, if you like, that goes from the male gaze onto the female body. They are, in fact, controlling that gaze all the time. Yeah, and absolutely. And in, in many ways, they wield their wardrobes as, as part of a weapon in those power dynamics. We are almost out of time, but Monica, before we wrap up today, I wanted to ask you, do you have a particular favorite Bond girl or film moment? I mean, your book is so incredibly detailed. It's so obvious that you've watched these films over and over and over many times. There are just, I mean, this is the hardest question of all, I think, because there are so many moments that I'd like to bring up. Samantha Bond's Money Penny uh, challenges Bond's flirtatious banter when she claimed that she doesn't sit at home waiting for him all dressed up and hoping for international uh, incident to, to occur so that she can run to the office and, and flirt <laughs> with, with James Bond. And she also um, sort of subtly accuses him of, you know, sexual harassment. That kind of moment really suggests to me that Bond girls are there for for cha- for challenging Bond's assumptions. Bond will always be probably a patriarchal figure, but as long as there are interesting female characters such as Wylene, um, you know, uh, Mayday, even Electra King, but even some of the Bond villains, uh, I love uh, Famke Janssen's role oh, in she's uh, so good. Gold. Uh, Xenia on a top, in spite of her name, or per- perhaps because of her name, she is on top all the time until the, the moment that she dies, and she dies in pleasure. You know, she dies, she, she'd rather die in pleasure, squeezing Bond between her ties than running away from him. And then there's the most iconic moment of the Bond female villain, which I think is Rosa Klebb in um, From Russia with Love. The moment where her spiky stiletto comes out of the toe of her shoe really made an impression on me as a child when I first watched the film. And to me, that really sums up the way in which female fashion can be seen not just uh, as an example of empty glamour or frivolity, but something that can be incredibly subversive and can show a different kind of femininity. And of course, in those days, particularly in, in relation to Fleming's from Russia with love. It would have been a reference to the stiletto heel, a heel that caused so much controversy because it represented a different kind of femininity, a femininity that was not just there to please men, but to please itself. Absolutely. Dr. Germana, thank you so much for joining us today to chat about the illustrious women of Bond. And thank you so much for your fabulous book. It's a fascinating read, and I highly recommend it to any of our listeners. And it can be found on Amazon or any major book retailer, correct? Yes, correct. Also from bloomsbury.com. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was a treat. Thank you so much. Monica, thank you so much for joining us all the way from London to speak about the women of Bond. You know, April, I really love the idea that many times these ladies are meant to function as a direct challenge to Bond's unique brand of masculinity. And that while Bond remains the same, the Bond girl, she's actually a progressive 
constantly evolving role, or as Monica said it best, Bond girls refuse to sit still and look pretty. They move fast and they kick ass. And their style has been a source of inspiration for more than one fashion designer in the past. For instance, in 2003, Diane von Furstenberg did an entire collection that was entitled License to Thrill, which is, of course, a play on the Bond film entitled License to Kill. And also, the nail polish company OPI has named several of their limited edition colors after Bond girls, which is super fun. And I find myself pondering, why do I not own all of these colors? (laughs) And Cash, you know, I have to ask you this. Do you have a favorite Bond girl or favorite Bond film? I I think I'm going to disappoint you here a little bit because I'm not a follower of James Bond films. What? (laughs) I have. I have certainly seen a few, um, but, but probably not nearly as many as you have. Although off the top of my head, Halle Berry has always been one of the most memorable Bond girls to me. Ah, well, um, Monica and I talked, of course, about Jane Seymour and Grace Jones, who are two of my favorite. But I also really love the character of Fatima Blush, who was played by Barbara Carrera in Never Say Never Again. So um, I think maybe next time we're hanging out, we're going to have to watch that because her (laughs) 80s wardrobe is killer. And pun there being intended, um, you know, there's this one scene where she has on a black sequin jumpsuit. It has like a super high collar that almost kind of like comes up and surrounds her head. And that's all lined in red sequins. And then she has on a black sequin cape that kind of like wafts behind her as she walks. Stiletto boots and a black pillbox hat with a net veil. I mean, it is oh so 80s. And I was just like, watching it the other day with my mouth open, my boyfriend walked into the room. He's like, oh my God, that outfit is so you. And I'm like, (laughs) right? So I have to admit, I did go on a little bit of a Bond binge when I was preparing to speak to Dr. Germana. So, you know, yesterday I may or may not have watched three Bond movies. And I'm not sure my binge is over yet, honestly. (laughs) And apparently I have to start watching Bond movies. (laughs) I think that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider adding in a little Bond girl appeal into your ensemble next time you get dressed. Please join us on Thursday for our Fashion History Mystery Mini-Sode, where we answer listener questions. If you'd like to submit a question, you can direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, or as always, you can email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. We still have a few slots left for our June 2020 group trip to Paris. And if you're interested, you can head over to likemindstravel.com for more information. And thank you, as always, to our producers, Holly Fry and Casey Pegram, as well as everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you Thursday. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.